Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. We are in Matthew chapter 5, verses 19 through 20 today. Uh, if you would, please grab your Bibles and go ahead and turn there. If you're new with us or if you're uh, returning and you need a Bible, please feel free to get up. We've got Bibles in the back there for you. That's our gift to you. And as you um, grab your Bible or turn to Matthew chapter 5, let me give us a review from last week. Uh, today we are continuing our study of Jesus' sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Last Sunday, we learned uh, what Jesus had to say about the Bible in, in verses 17 and 18, and we addressed questions that we often hear today. You know, how can we trust the Bible? Why would we take this ancient book so seriously? Uh, you know, the whole thing was written by men and not by God. And we saw how Jesus addressed those questions indirectly. Jesus is pro-Bible because he is the Bible. We learned how Jesus is the theme of all 66 books in the Bible. Jesus is nearly on every page of Scripture. Jesus is the scarlet thread that ties Genesis all the way to Revelation. And we went through every Old Testament book, didn't we? And we saw how Jesus is the fulfillment of every single law just as he taught here in Matthew's text. And we also looked at the elements within the Old Testament tabernacle. And we saw how Jesus fulfilled those, those elements with himself in the New Testament. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I, I love those kinds of, of studies. I, I think they're fascinating. I pray that you were blessed by it. And even though it seems like we drank from a fire hose last week, really we only scratched the surface. Um, if you're interested in learning more about how Jesus is the theme of the Old Testament, there's a great book called Theophany by Dr. Vern Poitras. Uh, Theophany, Theo meaning God, Phanon means to appear. So the book itself means uh, Theophany is the appearance of God in the Old Testament. Uh, and I highly recommend that to you. A couple key points from last week. Number one, we said that the Old Testament was inspired by Christ. It points to Christ, and it is also fulfilled in Christ. Key point number two from last week, we said that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law by being the fulfillment himself. And we discussed how all of this applies to our individual lives today. We learned how if, you know, it was, it's God who gave the law to man. It's not the other way around, right? Um, and because God gave the law to man, the law is outside of us. The, the law came from above. Isaiah 55, 9, the prophet says this, For as heaven is higher than the earth, so my ways, we could say my laws are higher than yours. My thoughts are higher than yours. So this means that God's laws are perfect. 
And it also means that there are consequences when we do break God's laws. So, for example, when we separate God from the law, we lose the standard on which the law was given. So, in other words, when you separate the law from the lawgiver, laws have no weight, they have no meaning, because everything becomes relative. Relative meaning that there's a social acceptance to the world and from the world. But you know what? There's also a relevance that, that comes from searching out the truth. And yet nothing could be more relevant to us uh, than God's revelation that is found in Scripture. Scripture is the standard of what is relevant and what is not. Regardless of the culture, regardless of the day and age that, that anybody lives in, and once again, that, uh, that message is on the website if you guys want to review that. So that's a short review from last Sunday. So last week, we learned what Jesus said about the Bible. Well, today we're going to le learn what Jesus has to say about heaven. If you ask somebody on the street how to get into heaven, what do you think they would say? You got to be good. Yeah. You got to be a good person. You got to do good things. You got to do good works. But the question then is, how good? What do they mean by good? good? Goodness is a relative term itself, right? Are they talking about Mother Teresa good or Adolf Hitler good? <laughs> There's got to be some kind of standard somewhere for us to know for certainty that we're going to heaven, right? I mean, and that's the question for today. And it's really an important question because it's an eternal question. So what's Jesus say about heaven? Well, let's find out. If you would, please stand for the reading and the honoring of God's word. I'm going to start in verse 17 to give us the full context of this passage. Jesus says, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or the stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all of these things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Wow. This is the word of the Lord for River Bible Church this morning. Please be seated. Let's take a deeper look here at verse 19. Jesus says, therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus starts off with therefore. So whenever you see that word, you always want to go back to see what the therefore is therefore, right? Otherwise, you're going to miss the whole context of the passage. So back to verse 17, Jesus says, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. No, 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 no. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. 
Jesus is saying, look, guys, I'm for you here. I'm not against you. I'm not this rogue rabbi that's bringing in this new doctrine. I'm going to fulfill. I'm fulfilling now the commands of Scripture that were given from the very beginning. He goes on in verse 18. He says, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter. Remember that? One stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all of these things are accomplished. So what he's saying is the law is still in effect here in the first century. Jesus is saying that the law is not going away. Verse 19, therefore, because the law is still in place, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. That word breaks there is luo in the Greek. So if we choose to annul, if we choose to unbind or unfasten uh, these Old Testament commands from our life, Jesus says we will be called the least in heaven. Your translation may use that word annul. That's a, that's a good translation. Uh, annul comes from nil. That word nil there, it means to bring the word of God to nothing. So if we make God's word void, if we pick and choose what we obey, if we treat the Bible like a suggestion box, Jesus says we're going to be called least in heaven. So the picture here is God's perfect standards and what we, uh, what we do as humans, we try to lower them because we know that we can't keep them. That word breaks there, luo, it comes from the same Greek word that Jesus used in verse 17 when he said, I'm, I'm not here to abolish the law. That word is kataluo. It's a stronger verb. It means to destroy or tear down. Um, and we get our English word antinomian from this Greek word verb that Jesus uses, kataluo. That is not an accident. Antinomian, antinomianism is destroying the church today. It's one of the biggest threats to, to the true church. Anti means against. Nomos means law, so it means anti-law. Antinomianism literally means anti-lawism. So this person sees himself as no, he's not under obligation to follow any type of moral code. So in other words, you can't tell me what to do. I'm free and I'm forgiven, amen and amen, because of the grace of Jesus. It's me and Jesus, right? It's all I need, me and Jesus. I don't need the institutional church. I'm not going to be a part of an organized religion. So in other words, what this person is saying is, you know what? I'm not accountable to anybody in my life. These are the same people who want to follow, who want you to follow them, and yet they submit to nobody. The consequences of antinomianism, this anti-lawism, very, very apparent in our culture today. You look at the complete breakdown of marriage in the home. That has led to the redefinition of marriage itself. We have the collapse of the entire education system, the school system, the chaos of politics in the state. We've got the complete disintegration of society in general. Why? Why all of these things? Because we've taken God's law 
out of these institutions. See, when, when, no one, when no one wants to be accountable to anybody else, anarchy is the only way to survive. It's, it's every man for himself. Antinomianism, it's not new. Anti-law. Moses tells the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 8. He says, look, guys, you are not to do as we're doing here today. Everybody is doing whatever seems right in their own eyes. The question is, okay, well, how do we know what is right? The book of Judges, if you read through that, that's the darkest period in the history of the Israelites. Judges 17, 6, in those days there was no king in Israel, which means there is no leader and no law. And because there's no king in Israel, everyone did what seemed right to him. Proverbs 12, 15. A fool's way is right in his own eyes. Proverbs 21.2. All a person's ways seem right to him. So being accountable to no one, this anti-law, this antinomianism, um, that's one side of the scale. Now, if we want to address the opposite error, that's legalism. Legalism says you can get to heaven by your own good deeds. So in other words, a legalist sets up his own set of rules so he can feel better about himself. He also forces and guilts people into following his rules as well. Legalism says that I can get to heaven because I, I try really hard at being a good person. I'm nice, and I don't try to cuss too much, especially in church. <laughs> You know, I even give my spare change to the homeless guy on the corner. I'm good. How can God not like me? But is that what Jesus is preaching in the text right here in the Sermon on the Mount? So let's find out. Verse 19, therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands. What's Jesus mean by least? Evidently, it looks like there's got to be some kind of hierarchy with these commands. The rabbis of the day, they felt that not every command is equal to the other. They thought that some were more important than the others. So what they did is they spent hours upon hours debating what commands were essential and what commands were not. The rabbis distinguished between what they considered light commandments over here and also the weighty ones over here. So... They divided 613 commands of the Old Testament. They came up with 248 commands that were positive, that left 365 as negative. Now, we have a hint of this kind of separation between the two in Matthew's gospel. Remember when, when um, a Pharisee asked Jesus, he said, Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? So in other, in other words, what he's asking is what's the one thing that I have to do to get into heaven? Just give me the one thing. Jesus said to him, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the greatest. This is the most important command. So Jesus affirms in this text that there is some kind of hierarchy. There's some kind of order here to the law. Jesus goes on in verse 39, he says, but the, like, the second is like this, you got to love your neighbor as yourself. 
All the law, all the prophets depend on these two commands. So what Jesus does here, he gives the Pharisee a command he was not expecting. The Pharisee was expecting Jesus to give him something to do. He wanted something to accomplish. And the same thing happens today, doesn't it? It's so easy for us to think that we're spiritual or that we're saved by our, our good actions, maybe our church attendance, all the Bible studies we go to, and all the so-called good deeds that we perform throughout the week. But what Jesus is teaching is that it's much more important to be than to do. See, once your heart is right, the rest of your life is so simple. It's not easy, but it is simple. Only when you get your heart right before a holy God can you do anything for him. Brings us to key point number one for today. Some commands are greater than others, but none are to be ignored. Some commands are greater than others, but none are to be ignored. So you, you can't rip out a certain page of your Bible. I mean, you can, but it's still there. Think, think of God's law as a chain to where each one of these links is a command. Each command is tied to the next. And when you break one command, that link is broken, right? Which means the chain is no longer good. It's no longer functional, meaning that all the laws have been broken. So back to verse 19, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same. Notice here that it's each one of us is accountable for keeping God's commands. But those of us who teach, we are also accountable for the people under our care. James 3.1, the apostle writes this, not many should become teachers. Why? Because you know that we're going to receive a stricter judgment. Now, some of you guys are thinking, whew, so glad I'm not a Bible teacher. <laughs> I am so glad. Well, you know, and that's fine. Maybe God didn't call you to, to teach his word formally. But mm, I'm not so sure here that God is going to let you off the hook this easy. This is most definitely a warning to those who teach. However, each one of you also teaches in some form or some fashion. We all teach by what we say. We all teach by our attitude towards others. We all teach by what we do. And what we do is a living proof text of what we genuinely believe about God, regardless of what we say. So back to verse 19, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same. You know, it's one thing to make a mistake or unintentionally teach something to where the teacher is in error, but it's another thing to specifically teach false doctrine with the intent for others to do the same. So key point number two for us today, it matters how people handle the holy it matters how people handle the holy. Because of social media, we have got this indoctrination of all these false teachings that have escalated substantially over the past <coughs> decade or so. 
We've got thousands of people with a microphone and nothing to say. We've got false teachers regurgitating what heretics have, have said from the very first century. And all they're doing, guys, is they're just repackaging that information and they're calling it a new name. Heresy is one of the, the reasons that our church history is so important. If we know our church history, we'll recognize that as a false teaching. But you know what? We also have a, our, a new set of 21st century problems and issues. There will always be people outside the church who ridicule the Bible. So what? We're used to that. The bigger problem, though, are the TV evangelists who interpret God's word to feed their own pocket. So rather than feeding the, the true word of God, what they do is they beat the flock into submission with all this junk food. Or what they do is uh, these false teachers, they change the definitions of these words so that people can stay inside their sin and even celebrate their sin and even worse, condemn those who disapprove of their sin. These false teachers are easy to recognize. False teachers are, you know, it seems to me as I, as I watch social media and you guys will send me these videos and I'll go, hey, watch this, tell me what you think. It seems to me that there is a certain look to these guys. There's a certain sound to their preaching. So let me just give you some general principles that I've noticed regarding false teachers who are teaching false churches. Number one, is the preaching done in a tone and a spirit of reverence? Or does it, more, does it look like a talk show? Does it look like the world? When the preacher gets up here, is he like, hey, how's everybody doing? Number two, is the preaching more about you or is it about Jesus? Number three, how often does the preacher teach on things like sin and obedience and repentance and hell? Now, some of these things are pretty obvious. Some are not. Um, and I would encourage you not to believe everything that you hear. And dear friends, that includes what you're hearing from me this morning. Search the Bible for yourself. Read the Word of God by the Spirit of God. Let's not fall into this, this state of antinomianism either, right? The Lord is your teacher. And the church is your sounding board so you don't get all wonky and sideways. Write down your questions. Get a good, solid Bible commentary. If you need help with that, please come and ask. Back to verse 19. Whoever breaks one of the least of these commands, teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean, will be called? Who's calling who names in heaven? Is verse 19 talking about what other people are going to say about us? Probably not. When we look at the rest of Scripture and what it says about heaven, that really doesn't fit. This, this calling of being the least, it probably refers to what God himself will say about us 
if we break his commands and we teach others to do the same. Now notice here, Jesus is not saying that these false teachers will lose their salvation. They will still be in the kingdom of heaven, but notice that it appears that there's some type of hierarchy when we get there. Y'all see the mercy in that? That's amazing. Back to verse 19. Whoever breaks one of the least of these commands, teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So that phrase, the kingdom of heaven, is used three times here in two verses. So what is it? What is the kingdom of heaven? Both John the baptizer and Jesus started preaching the same thing. They both said, repent, because what? The kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus started preaching the Beatitudes by saying in Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Jesus also closed with the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Jesus teaches us how to pray the Lord's Prayer, and he refers to his kingdom. Matthew 6.10, your kingdom come, your will be done as it is in heaven. Jesus goes on to teach about the kingdom of heaven another 161 times in the Gospels. He refers to it as a real kingdom. Jesus also uses it in his parables. So the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, same phrasing there, same thing, is many things. Key point number three, the kingdom of heaven is wherever Jesus is king. It's the rule, it's the reign of God. The kingdom of heaven is wherever Jesus is king. It is the rule, it is the reign of God. So if Jesus is king in your heart, then the kingdom of God is within you. We could also say it this way, that the kingdom of heaven on earth is the church. It's you and me. However, because Jesus is king in heaven, the kingdom of heaven is also in heaven. He's there as well, obviously. And that's the context of Jesus' statement here in verse 19. He says, whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great. Now, this is super cool because Jesus defines greatness for us. So your spiritual resume does not determine greatness. In other words, greatness is not defined by how many homeless people that you fed. It's not defined by how many homes that you've built, how many wells that you've dug, or the number of people that you've brought to Christ. Greatness, Jesus says, is determined by your obedience to the scriptures. Greatness is defined by obedience to the word of God. And, and Jesus presses into this point in verse 20. He says, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. He says, I tell you. So Jesus, what he's getting ready to do here, he's going to turn the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees upside down. Everything's going to turn on their heads. And for the next few Sundays, Jesus correctly interprets the scriptures with the rabbis because they have misinterpreted them for thousands of years. So back to verse 20. 
For I tell you, unless your righteousness. So as Jesus' sermon progresses here, we realize that Jesus, he doesn't expect his disciples to surpass the scribes and the Pharisees at their own game. So instead, what Jesus does is he defines righteousness back to its original meaning. So back to verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses. The word picture here, think of a river that is overflowing. The river is, is giving more water than the banks can handle. That's the word picture here of surpassing. Surpassing what? Verse 20, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So the disciples thought that the scribes and the Pharisees were the godliest people on the face of the planet. The scribes and the Pharisees, they were looked up to. They were admired because they were the ones who handled the law. They interpreted the Bible. They were the religious leaders of the day. They were the pastors, the priests, the ministers like we have today. That word scribe there in the Greek is grammatus. We get our English word grammar from it. So the scribes were the ones that recorded the law. They copied the law. They were the authorities in the Old Testament. These guys were the ones with the PhDs, right? They were the religious scholars of the day. Many scribes, they could recite the entire Old Testament verbatim. And the reason for that is because they devoted their lives to recopying and reinterpreting the law. The Jews had a saying, they said, you know, if only two people get into heaven, one's going to be a scribe and the other's going to be a Pharisee. And if I were a betting man, I'd have to guess that no one here at River Bible Church, and I mean nobody, studied the scriptures like the Pharisees and the scribes. And yet, Jesus says this in verse 20. He says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, these guys who have memorized Genesis 1-1 to Malachi 4-6, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Say, what? <laughs> if these guys can't get into heaven, well, who can't? I mean, how is it possible that these men devote their entire lives knowing the Old Testament, and yet they miss heaven? Now, the opposite must be true as well. And this is, this is a hard pill for us to swallow, right? So let me say it in the negative. This is a lot stronger. How can these religious leaders of Jesus' day devote their entire lives to knowing the Old Testament and yet they are still going to hell? Wow. The answer is that they are unredeemed. They are unregenerate. They are not born again. They, they did not have the faith of their father Abraham. These men are worldly, and they saw their positions as careers. They were never called into ministry. This was a job for them. This is how they made a living. The scribes and the Pharisees, these men were religious businessmen. They were not shepherds. And although they studied God's divine word, they interpreted it through human means. 
So when Jesus preached these words, you probably heard audible gasp from the disciples. This was probably the most radical thing that Jesus had said yet. Now, it may seem to us, kind of looking back, because we've got a fuller picture of the story, that the Pharisees made things harder with all of their external rules and all their, their traditions. But in all reality, what they did is they made things easier for themselves because they followed their version of holiness and godliness and righteousness. All of that was purely external. Now, please don't misunderstand because these man-made traditions, they, it was hard work, but it could be done. And not only could it be done, but it could be done by themselves with no faith in God whatsoever. And that's Jesus' point. Jesus goes into an extended teaching about the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. Jesus spoke to the crowd and to the disciples, and he said, The scribes and the Pharisees, they are seated in the chair of Moses. So in other words, these men have authority, okay? Verse 3, therefore, do whatever they tell you. They observe it, watch them, but don't do what they do because they don't practice what they teach. What these men do is they tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry, and they put, on, they put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves, mm -mm, they're not willing to lift a finger to move them. Look at verse 5. They do everything. This is Jesus speaking. They do everything to be seen by others. So they enlarge their phylacteries and they lengthen their tassels. Jesus is talking about their clothes there. We do the same thing. Well, we see, we see the same thing with today's false teachers. Uh, you know, with the skinny jeans and the Armani suits. Same thing. Think about this. The insinuation, when you see these, these preachers with their clothes, the insinuation is that when you believe in Jesus and you follow their version of Jesus, you will be able to dress like me and have a pain-free life. You too can have your best life now. You don't have to wait for the kingdom of heaven. Boy, that sounds good. But don't fall for it, please, dear friends. Don't fall for it. They are lying to you. Verse 6 says, they love, the scribes and the Pharisees, they love the place of honor at the banquets, the front seats in the synagogues. They love all the greetings in the marketplace. They love to be called rabbi by, by the people. So everything was external with these guys. And we often see the very same thing when churches make headline news. So all that to say this, the scribes and the Pharisees knew that they could not be holy in the same way God is holy. So what they did is they changed the meaning of holiness. Jesus is teaching that a, a religion here by your own works is a false system. They lowered the standard of God's holiness and they taught others to do the same. They saw nothing wrong with evil thoughts. As long as they didn't act on them, hey, I'm good. And Jesus says, no, you're wrong. To Jesus, our motives, our heart, that's everything. Why? 
Because if our motives are not restrained, if our motives are not pure, if some sort of self-discipline is not applied in our lives, those motives, those thoughts will become a reality. If I think about doing something I'm not supposed to be doing long enough, I will eventually do it. So the scribes and the Pharisees, what they had to do for forgiveness, right? They had to go through all of these rituals. Brings us to key point number four. Man-made ritual is never a substitute for God's righteousness. Man-made ritual is never a substitute for God's righteousness. So in other words, God wants a relationship with you, right? He's not looking for a robot. He doesn't need a golden retriever. Verse 20, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So how do you get into the kingdom of heaven? Dear friends, this is the best news you will ever hear. Key point number five, the one who demands perfect righteousness gives perfect righteousness to you. The one who demands perfect righteousness gives it away. Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So no church, no ritual, no works, no philosophy, no human system can bring a person to God. Only God brings people to God. And it's through Jesus the righteousness and the perfection that God requires, He gives it away, and He gives it away freely. The most famous verse in Scripture, right? John 3, 16. God loved the world in this way. In what way? That He gave. He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him won't perish, but you'll have eternal life. God's grace is free. Salvation is free. All we have to do is believe. It certainly isn't deserved. It's not earned or accomplished. It is only accepted. So Jesus' main point is this. We are not to act like the scribes and the Pharisees. We are to think and act like God instead. So let's go back to the original question this morning. If someone that you asked on the street, how do you get into heaven? What are they going to say? Got to be a good person, right? But how good are we supposed to be? How good is good? Let's raise the stakes a little bit this morning. Are we talking Mother Teresa good or are we talking Billy Graham good? Neither. We're talking Jesus Christ good. See, the problem with the, that answer is that we don't like it. And we don't like it because our default mode to spiritual things and anything considered religion is just so superficial. Dear friends, there are only two religions. doesn't matter what you call them. Two religions. Number one, human striving and number two, divine accomplishment. Both of these are based on works. Self-righteousness, this lie that I'm good enough, you know, this, this idea of my works 
will get me into heaven, the, the religion of human striving. But divine accomplishment is based on God himself, the person and the works of Jesus Christ. And it's, it, it's the work of perfection. It's the fulfilling of, of the law that Jesus gives to you. That is, if you believe. So what Jesus is saying about heaven this morning is this, that if you want to get into heaven, well, you either got to be perfect or know somebody who is. You, meaning, you either are perfect because you don't need forgiveness, or Jesus must give his perfection to you. Father in heaven, what a, an amazing text. We want to praise you and thank you for telling us not what man says about heaven, not the hoops that I have to jump through, but what you say about heaven. Lord, thank you for the truth this morning. Thank you that the truth is so simple that a child can understand. And at the same time, the truth is so weighty that it can punch us in the gut and meet us where we are. Father in heaven, thank you for sending your son Jesus, for telling us that perfect people don't need heaven. And we all realize that none of us match that standard. Father, thank you that perfect people don't go to heaven, but forgiven sinners do. Thank you, Lord God, that we are forgiven sinners. And now, may Lord, uh, Lord God, may we, as we, uh, as we get ready to leave and Rest for the rest of the day, whatever our schedule is, and for the rest of this week. May we wrestle with this truth of what you say about heaven. May you continue to bring these God intersections and these divine disruptions to our life so we can share this true gospel. Father, thank you for this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen. and amen.